Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at the animated DreamWorks classic, Prince of Egypt from 1998. Before we begin, I apologise for not giving any individual shout-outs, but this is probably my most requested film, so I shall just say thank you to everyone who suggested it. I really do always enjoy getting messages from people, because, you know, not only is it really nice just to know that people are enjoying the show, but it's also just really useful and, well, quite interesting to see the content that people want me to cover. In terms of the layout, firstly, I should probably just say that this is the first of two parts on this film, as, well, there's a lot to cover here. In this first part, we shall look over the background information of the film, and then there will be a section on the Exodus and the evidence surrounding the origins of the Hebrew people. I shall also look a bit at the meaning of the name Moses. Then, in the next episode, so next week, we shall look over the actual historical accuracy of the film, as you know we normally do, and then review it. But before all of that, it is time for my dramatic intro. Right. You are a young and privileged prince, and also the best friend of the future pharaoh. As you travel the streets, the slaves around you are being worked to the bone. For the most part, you are able to ignore this. After all, it is not your fault they were born into this position. However, one day you encounter one of these slaves, and they tell you something shocking. They claim that you were born as one of them. At first, you do not believe this and are incredibly angry. However, as you look more into it, you realise the terrifying truth of your society and your situation. With a newfound empathy for these slaves and a developing faith in their god, you are set up as their hero. You will be a prince to these slaves, as you had been. A Prince of Egypt.
The Prince of Egypt cost $60 million to make, meaning that in 1998, it was the most expensive non-Disney animated film ever produced. On top of this, it was also a big financial hit as it made $218.6 million at the box office. When it comes to the actual filming, easily the most time-consuming scene was the parting of the Red Sea. This took 10 animators over two years to achieve, and in fairness, I do personally think the scene looks absolutely spectacular. I mean, even today, it looks really good. And also, you know, it's hard not to be impressed by such commitment. Interestingly, when an animator messed up during the making of this film, they would be sent to work on another film, which DreamWorks were not holding out much hope for. Apparently, the animation process for this film they were sent to was seen as incredibly gruelling and there was quite a few in the company who did not believe the film would ever see the light of day. And if it did, it almost certainly would not be profitable. However, not only did this film see the light of day, it was also over twice as profitable as The Prince of Egypt. This film was Shrek. Moving on. The Prince of Egypt is not without its controversies, as to this day it remains banned in areas such as Malaysia and Egypt, and was even initially banned in Indonesia as well. This is largely because, in the religion of Islam, prophets, of which Moses is one of, are not supposed to be visually depicted. In terms of the cast, if I was to go over all of the famous voices in this film, <laughs> uh, we'd be here all day, so I've just selected a few. For a start, Val Kilmer plays the part of Moses, and also voices God in the film for the most part as well. However, if you listen closely to the voice of God, you can hear all of the other characters whispering along with the lines, giving God an almost haunting effect. Moving on, Ray Fiennes plays Ramesses II, Sandra Bullock plays Miriam, who's Moses' biological sister, Steve Martin and Martin Short play the two Egyptian priests, and Patrick Stewart plays Seti I. Okay, we have now arrived at the history section of the episode. So, as explained at the beginning of the episode, this section is going to be a bit different. Rather than looking at the historical accuracy of the film, I shall instead mainly be looking at the evidence surrounding the origin of the Hebrew people, as well as just generally at the Exodus. I will go over the actual historical accuracy of the film in the next episode. So, in the film, Ramesses II is betrayed as the Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus, and in fairness, there is some founding for this. For a start, in the Bible, it is claimed that the Hebrews helped build the cities of Python and Ramesses. Ramesses here is believed to refer to Per-Ramesses, which was indeed founded by Ramesses II. However, this is by no means a certain argument, as the Bible also refers to these cities as storage cities. Per-Ramesses was instead the capital at the time. There are some scholars who also point towards the Stealer of Merenbatar, otherwise known as the Victory Stealer, as an argument as to why the Exodus could not have happened under Ramesses II. So, for those who don't know, a Stealer is a large slab of inscribed stone that's normally shaped a little bit like a gravestone. 
In terms of the Stealer of Merenbatar, it mainly talks about his victories over Libyan tribes. However, there is a section of it that also talks about Canaan and his campaign there, and this is the part that we're mainly focusing on. Basically, Merenbatar was the son of Ramesses II, and also his successor. This Stealer has the first ever definite reference to the Israelites on it. There is an argument that there is not enough time between the Exodus under Ramesses II and their appearance as an actual people in this stela. However, there are issues with this argument. Ramesses II reigned for a really long time, about 67 years in total, meaning even by the biblical story there is theoretically enough time for the Israelites to leave Egypt, wander around the desert for 40 years and then arrive in Canaan. It is also worth noting that on the Victory Stealer, the Israelites are not depicted as a settled people. Generally, when people are settled, they are given a city determinative at the end of the name. So, for those who don't know, a determinative is a little bit like an emoji. It basically comes at the end of the word to add extra information and to determine what the word is referring to. When it comes to the Israelites on the Victory Stealer, Rather than having a city determinative, they have a throw stick and a sign representing people. This could imply that at this point they were a nomadic people without a settled home. Describing them as such would link up pretty well with the exodus happening during the reign of Ramesses II, and then them first appearing in the Victory Stealer. To further back this up, there is actually a decree by Ramesses II that reads thus. The Aparu, who transport stones to the great pylon of Ramesses. The Aparu people have been theorised to be linked to the Habaru people, who may have been linked to the Hebrew people. Habaru? Hebrew. It's kind of self-explanatory, really. However, it is worth noting that this is highly theoretical, and also only one very vague reference. It is also by no means certain that the Hebrews descended from the Habaru, the name may just sound similar. Firstly, the Habru people seem to have been extremely diverse and widespread. They are mentioned everywhere from Sumeria, which largely existed in what is now Iraq, to Egypt, to Anatolia in Turkey, from about 1800 BC until around about 1200 BC. The word tends to have connotations of slaves and servants, but also outlaws, rebels and thieves. So even the name here has some rather widespread and vague meanings, though typically they do have negative connotations. Considering how widespread and varied this group were, it is likely that if the Hebrews did come from the Habaru people, then they would have almost certainly been more of a small subsection of them rather than the entire thing. However, even taking that into account, it is also not entirely certain that the Aparu people were linked to the Habaru people, so all we can really say is that the Aparu people may either be linked or the same as the Habaru people who the Hebrews may have come from. It's hardly a compelling argument. It is also worth noting that there are no Egyptian sources that talk directly about the Exodus, and no definite first-hand evidence either. This does not mean that it definitely didn't happen of course. For a start, the areas of the Exodus are in the north of Egypt in the Delta region. This area is typically much wetter than the southern parts of the country. 
archaeological evidence tends to survive better in drier areas. This means that regardless of whether we're talking about the Exodus or another point in Egyptian history, even if the capital of the country was in the Delta region, we still typically know more about the south of the country at that time, just because the evidence survived there. So the idea of the evidence of the Exodus not surviving in the north of Egypt is about right, to be honest. Further, the Egyptians did not like talking about their failures, though I would also argue that there being no mention at all of the Exodus does suggest that it probably didn't shake the political landscape of the country or anything like that. You know, it, it likely is a bit exaggerated. On the other hand, it is also possible that the Hebrews originated from the Shasu people. These are mentioned during the reign of Ramesses II in Papyrus Anastasti I, a satirical text that was used to train scribes. Here, the Shasu people are described as haunting the highland areas around Canaan. These people are described as Semitic-speaking nomads. Further, in both this text and one from the reign of Amenhotep III before it, they are referred to as Tashasu Yahweh, meaning land of the Shasu Yahweh. The translation of Yahweh here lines up nicely with Yahweh, the name of God in the Bible. On top of this, even in the Bible, for instance, such as in Deuteronomy 33.2, it says that the Lord came to the Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. Interestingly, 5th century BC lists from Solab and Amara suggest that a large amount of the original sort of Shasu settlements originated in northern Edom. The region of Seir, which is spoken about in that verse I just read, you know, uh, Deuteronomy 33.2, is actually located in northwest Edom. So this does seem to give further evidence that the Shasu could hold the origins of the Hebrew people. During the 12th century BC, there is actually plenty of evidence for these people in the highland areas of what is now Palestine. Back then, that was Canaan. However, generally, these settlements here are characterised by very plain pottery and a distinct lack of Egyptian artefacts. Further, the Shasu people tended to be settled north of what would become Israel. If they had escaped from Egypt, it could be argued they'd be more likely to settle in the south. An argument against the Shasu people becoming the Israelites, however, is that on the Merenbatar Vitri Stela, where Israel is first mentioned, they do not look anything like the Shasu. However, realistically, this could just be because they'd evolved as a people and thus, you know, wore different clothes, now had different hairstyles. However, realistically, there is a third and to be honest would be more likely option here, and it's pretty similar to the argument made about the Habaru people. Maybe the Hebrews were simply a subsection of the Shasu. After all, the Shasu people were nomadic and occupied a large area. It would definitely not be surprising if they were a pretty diverse group of people. So essentially, there is still a lot we do not know about the origin of the Hebrew people, though their origins do have a couple of possibilities. The first option is that they originated from the Habaru people, and the second is that they originated from the Shasu people. However, considering that both of these groups were very large and varied, it is likely that either way, the Hebrews would have been only a small subsection of them. In terms of the Exodus itself, there isn't really any direct evidence that it ever happened, though this does not necessarily mean that it didn't happen. 
After all, we are talking about a time period well over 3,000 years ago. Further, Paramesis is in the Delta region of Egypt, which is far wetter than areas further south. Archaeological evidence is far less likely to survive in such wet conditions. Further, the Egyptians did not typically write about their own failures. Therefore, just because there is no direct written evidence does not mean that the exodus did not happen in some capacity, though it probably does suggest that it was smaller than it's implied to be and it didn't really rock the political foundations of Egypt. It is worth noting also that there are other theories out there. For instance, you have some Egyptologists, such as David Roll, who puts the exodus further back in time. You also get those such as Abraham Malamat, who argues that the exodus took place slightly later in the 19th dynasty and linked them to the activity of the very mysterious Sea Peoples. However, realistically, we would be here all day if I was to explain every theory out there, so I shall not go into whether these separate theories convince me or not here. After all, it is worth noting that we also have Exodus Gods and Kings to cover and both Ten Commandments films. All of these also talk about the Exodus, so there will be plenty of other episodes to look into alternative theories with their own particular strengths and weaknesses. Moving on, when it comes to Moses, both in this film and in the Bible, I've always been a little bit confused by his name. So, for those who don't know the story, when Moses was born, Pharaoh ordered that all the newborn Hebrew children be drowned in the Nile. As such, Moses' mother hid him in the bulrushes by the riverbank, where later he was discovered and adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. She then named him Moses. There are two main ideas for the origin of this name. The first of these is that it's Hebrew. In this case, Moses would mean drawn out, symbolising the princess drawing Moses out from the river. When it comes to the ancient Egyptian language, however, Moses means born of. So, for instance, let's look at the pharaoh in this very film. He's called Ramoses, so Ra, Moses. Born of Ra. Therefore, Moses on its own is incomplete, and as such, there would have likely originally been a god's name attached at the beginning. I feel personally, if this story is more of a metaphor, then the Hebrew word origin here is more likely. However, if there is some truth behind the character of Moses, then I do not see why the princess would have named him a Hebrew name. After all, she was bringing him up as an Egyptian. In this case, the Egyptian origin would make more sense. Though, as already said, Moses almost certainly wouldn't have been his full name if this is the case. So, to conclude this section, when it comes to the Exodus, for myself, I do not feel the current evidence for it is convincing enough. This is not to say it definitely did not happen, and indeed, I would not be entirely surprised if there were grains of truth to the biblical story. After all, the location of the Exodus happened in the north of Egypt where the ground is wetter and evidence is less likely to survive in such environments. In terms of the origin of the Hebrew people, they were likely a subsection of either the Habru people or the Shasu people. Personally, I lean more towards the Shasu people, largely because they hold the first mention of Yahweh, the Hebrew god. Further, the Shasu people seem to have their origins in Edom, which according to Deuteronomy 33.2, is arguably where Yahweh came from. But realistically, the argument for the Habaru origin for the Hebrew people is not without merit either. 
Essentially, neither of these options is entirely certain. In terms of the word Moses, if this story is more of a metaphor, then I believe the Hebrew name Moses, meaning drawn out, is more likely this would refer to the princess drawing Moses out from the Nile when he was younger. However, if there was indeed a historical figure named Moses, then I do not see why they would name him a Hebrew name. After all, he was being brought up as an Egyptian. In this case, Moses meaning born of, so the Egyptian origin, would make more sense and it would likely have been part of a longer name. Thank you very much for listening. I certainly hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if you have, please do consider liking and subscribing. And join me next week for the concluding episode on the Prince of Egypt. I hope you all have an amazing week and see you then. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.